Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Zach Costello. Zach is a postdoctoral fellow at the Joint Bioenergy Institute. Zach, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Hi, uh, happy to be here. Why don't we get started by having you tell us a little bit about your background and how it led you to working on machine learning? Absolutely, yeah. So um, I'm a researcher whose goal is to sort of advance the transition of biology into an engineering discipline. Uh, I spend my time solving challenging problems in synthetic biology where I apply uh, a various set of skills that I've developed over my education, like machine learning, control theory, applied mathematics more generally, and robotic automation, um, uh, where my work is kind of situated uh, in between biological theory and practice so that the techniques I develop can be validated by either me or my colleagues in the lab. Um, and whenever I undertake a project, the goal is to sort of advance the the idea of creating a world where um, organisms can be engineered predictably, rapidly, and at low cost. Uh, in terms of my education, I started out uh, actually as an electrical engineer, where I focused on electromagnetics as an undergraduate. Um, and then I took a position uh, in between that at the Georgia Tech Research Institute, where I kind of did a little bit of uh, biological application, and I started to get into some sort some classification problems involving that. Um, but for me, during my education, one of the guiding principles was to sort of pick the best teacher over the coolest problem so I could learn as much as possible and as, uh, as deeply as possible. Uh, I figured there's like fascinating problems everywhere. Um, and so, you know, in that vein, I kind of did a little bit of a switch up for my PhD and was in a swarm robotics lab under, uh, my advisor, Magnus Eggerstedt, who was just an excellent teacher. Um, and the theoretical focus of the lab there was uh, network control theory. Um, and my PhD was focused on studying what a certain class of network dynamical systems could compute. And the fundamental question here was, how do you do computation when you actually don't have any leaders in charge of it? So there's no single thing orchestrating it. Um, and there's certain places computers can't go, but they still have to process information and react to complex environments. So in some sense, uh, even then, I had biological applications in mind. Uh, and one particular example I was always thinking about is how cells can coordinate to compute. Uh, and I figured once I finished my doctorate, though, I either need to start working in biology or I'd never really find my way in. And so for my postdoc, I made the transition into synthetic biology. Um, and, and I'm doing my postdoc now at the Joint Bioenergy Institute uh, in the Quantitative Metabolic Modeling Group under Dr. Hector Garcia-Martin who has been an excellent advocate for the integration of mathematics, machine learning, and automation in synthetic biology, where it's still pretty nascent. Uh, and this is where I actually started doing my work formally in machine learning. Um, I picked up machine learning as a way to speed up the rate at which I could deal with the complex subject of synthetic biology because I did not have a biological background. Um, I work with really talented chemical engineers and biochemists, and I just won't be able to compete for probably another few years on raw biological knowledge. So for me, the machine learning provided a way of handling some of that complexity and like giving me the ability to contribute where I was still developing skills. So uh, I love that. I often, uh, you know, in talking to people about machine learning and AI, uh, refer to it as a superpower um, that you know, <laughs> potentially gives folks who wielded a, a tremendous advantage and. You know, your story is kind of a great example of that. T tell us a little bit more about uh, synthetic bio and, and what are the kinds of problems you're working on there? 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, the way I think about it is uh, when any science becomes sufficiently mature, it sort of births a corresponding engineering discipline, you know. Um, and so in this case, you know, biology has accumulated a lot of different knowledge over the years. And these are sort of in the form of individual properties of different parts of biology. Uh, and synthetic biology is maybe just a rebranding of genetic engineering, but the aim is to make biological systems predictably engineerable so that you can solve an array of human challenges. Um, and for me specifically, uh, I work in sort of a subdiscipline of that uh, called metabolic engineering. Um, and in metabolic engineering, we aim to add reactions to metabolisms to make molecules that are useful to people. Uh, so some examples of those might be fuels, pharmaceuticals, or biomaterials, say spider silk or plastics. Um, and maybe just to sort of, I think there's probably one key analogy that people can kind of key in on to understand what's going on in the context of the conversation I think we're likely to have going forward. Um, and so I think maybe one of your guests mentioned this before, uh, the central dogma of biology is kind of important here. Okay. Uh, which is uh, DNA is transcribed into RNA, RNA is translated into proteins. Um, in metabolic engineering, proteins are used to catalyze reactions, and so we, we add reactions to an organism to make new chemicals. Um, and sort of a good way to think about metabolism as a whole is, say, a subway system. Um, so if you imagine the subway system in the Bay Area, um, each, each station would represent a particular chemical that's present in the body for an important reason. Um, and then uh, those are connected through uh, tunnels between these stations. So if you want to get from, say, San Francisco to Oakland, there might be a series of stops. Now, the tunnels that connect it are actually the proteins here. So as we produce protein in the body, what we're actually doing, or produce protein in a particular organism, what we're actually doing is sort of providing the track to allow us to go from one metabolite to another. Uh, and in metabolic engineering, uh, it's like a build-out. So we have an organism that already has sort of like a subway station-like layout, and we're finding the closest station where we have to build out to a particular molecule. And then we find the proteins that will allow us to sort of build out there. So the the idea is that you've got proteins are what allow you to create these these metabolites that create some chemical reaction within the body that's desired, and you're trying to engineer the protein so that you can goose the creation of these metabolites? Is that the idea? Yeah, in a sense. So uh, a lot of times we don't necessarily even create the protein. So um, what we might do when we're building a particular strain, uh, at JBay we build different strains uh, of, of microorganisms by, and we add to their metabolism. Uh, we might look across, you know, all domains of life. So uh, we might borrow from mint, uh, brewer's yeast, evergreen trees. And inside of all of these, these organisms are tons of different proteins. And each protein, you can think of it just like a little nanomachine. I mean, that's what they are. Um, that basically is a factory for turning one chemical into another. Um, and so, you know, we'll scour these things across life and essentially borrow the important machines that each one has painstakingly developed over the many years of its evolution and put them into our organism of interest so that they can actually make that thing. Is that, uh, that aspect of a protein, kind of this micro machine idea, is that fundamental to what a protein is or kind of a side product of the way they exist or how they're used in the body? Oh, that's absolutely fundamental. So, uh, every enzyme does this. And in fact, there's, there's a great deal of really cool YouTube videos out there um, that show sort of how much like machines they actually are. I think that 
uh, oftentimes people kind of think of them very abstractly, but they're doing physical things. Um, so for example, there are proteins that literally walk along these structures inside of your cells called actin fibers. They're essentially the skeleton, but it's like a highway. So you've got these little proteins and they've got these two little molecular legs and they're literally walking along it, dragging cargo. Um, I mean, you know, inside the human body, it's just, it's molecular clockwork. It's incredibly complex. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, maybe talk through a specific example. You're working on specific uh, metabolic pathways in, in your research. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the ones that, well, we, we deal with two in, in the paper, um, uh, in a recent paper we published. Um, and uh, one of them is producing a molecule called limonene, um, which is a candidate fuel molecule. Um, uh, limonene is, it's a major component of citrus fruit oils and is actually used as a fragrance. Uh, if you were to smell it, uh, it's actors, uh, it has like a lemony scent. Uh, but it also turns out it can be used as a fuel. Uh, you can burn it and, uh, make your car go. Um, and in this case, yeah, so we, like I was saying before, we borrowed several different proteins. And I think actually the examples I gave you before were for this particular strain, uh, for mint and brewer's yeast and evergreen trees. There are about 10 proteins we had to add to this organism. Um, and the goal here is to basically um, take these organisms once you've genetically modified them and you put them through a similar process that you, you brew beer with. So essentially you put them in this broth which contains the sugars they need to live um, and then you let them grow up and in the process of growing they release their, um, their metabolite. So your limonene, you make a lot of that. Uh, if your strain is good, they make as much as possible, and you'll actually be able to just skim that off the top uh, or you know, find a way of isolating it pretty easily, and then you're good. So um, a lot of the problems that we deal with in metabolic engineering involve maximizing the production of a particular biomolecule so that we can extract it and use it. And so the you mentioned a bunch of uh, substances, mint and, and other things. Are these needed to be put into, like, in proportion into this concoction, <laughs> or are you? Oh, um, is it? You know, you've got you're trying, you know, just mint or just something else and just something else, and seeing which ones you can kind of get the most of this limonate from. Oh, um, so yeah. So what we do is we actually never use those organisms. We look in their genomes and we pull out um, parts of their genetic code. And that part of the genetic code codes for the particular nanomachine of interest inside of those organisms. So then we take out, you know, we'll take a protein from mint, a protein from brewer's yeast, a protein from evergreen trees, and then we will put that in our organism of interest and um, put that DNA in there and it will learn how to make those. It, then from that DNA, it's able to use that as a blueprint to make the proteins that it needs to actually make limonene, which is our compound of interest. But the, the challenging part is to make sure you get the proportions of all those proteins correct. Yeah. And in this particular example, the organism of interest is... Oh, what? absolutely. Yeah. So um, in this study, we were using E. coli. Um, e. coli is just one of the standard... Um, uh, model organisms in synthetic biology. Uh, the reason we use it is because it has a lot of genetic tools and it's been studied. So it's easy to use things like CRISPR-Cas9 based systems for integrating things. And it's easy to get DNA out of, or into the organism. And it's pretty easy to grow and it grows quickly. So, so E. coli is, is this, uh, you know, it's basically like a 
a macro machine, if you will, and your process is changing some of its micro machinery to let it do different things. And you uh, kind of inject these proteins or add these proteins to it uh, to get it to be better at producing a particular result for you. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, we're just adding things to it to help to change its metabolism so it can make uh, our target compound 100%. Awesome. And so how does machine learning and data science uh, fit into all that? Oh, yeah. So this is so there's a few challenges, actually, um, that uh, people so when we're trying to actually put things into these organisms, uh, we have to figure out sort of what proportions we ultimately want the proteins to be at, right? We want, and we also want to understand um, the dynamic behavior of these organisms. So, um, in order to do that traditionally, it was a very, very complicated process. Uh, you need a domain expert, and that domain expert has to write down uh, very complicated differential equations, um, which describe the dynamic behavior of the system. Uh, and so, you know, uh, we actually went through the process and did that, but it turns out that it's really hard to do this well enough because oftentimes the information you need to build that model isn't present in the literature. So you have to guess, you have to make a lot of guessing and you create a very structured model. Um, but we saw an opportunity to, instead of just building these models by hand, um, find a way to use machine learning so that we didn't have to make any assumptions about the structure of the dynamics of these systems. Um, and okay, so maybe maybe the, the best way to go here is sort of to a 30,000 foot view of, of what we were trying to do uh, in that paper. Does that sound reasonable? Sure. Okay, cool. So once we actually have, so in our case, we were trying to use time series data to actually figure out what the dynamic behavior of these systems were. And the problem, I think, can be phrased pretty simply, which is, let's say I give you, uh, so imagine a ball and a hill. Um, and the hill can have any kind of shape. Maybe it's oblong, maybe it's bumpy, maybe it's tall or short. Uh, you don't really know. But I'm going to give you a set of trajectories uh, for how the ball rolls down the hill given different starting points. So I'm going to put the ball maybe at the top and maybe somewhere down the side of this hill. And then I'm going to give you just what it looks like for the ball to roll down the hill. And essentially what we are trying to do is given all these time series data, uh, data sets, can you actually reconstruct the hill? Can you tell me what the hill looks like? Um, and in that way, we can actually figure out um, we can actually figure out how the entire system will behave regardless of the setup uh, of the proteins in the cell. So we're actually able to determine production. We're able to simulate all these cells without actually having a model a priori defined. So this hill analogy, I think, will be familiar to uh, many or most listeners from kind of conversations around gradient descent and finding local optima on the hill. It sounds like you're doing something a little different, which is trying to capture the hill itself. Exactly. Yeah. So we figure with time series data, what you have is this relationship for how something moves. Um, and in our case, um, when you have the whole of metabolism, um, it's this very complicated dynamic process. And we want to understand and when I say dynamic process, all that I mean is that let's say we know something about what chemicals are present at what concentrations in the cell at this particular moment. Um, then I should be able to tell you at the next moment 
what those chemical compositions are going to look like based on the state of the cell. Um, and so if we have time series, essentially we have examples of all those transitions. Um, and we can back out essentially what should happen more generally if we have enough of those transitions. And the time series data that you have is what in particular? Yeah. So, um, we had initially, uh, a really great data set, um, which I think by most, uh, from compared to most, uh, of the guests here is probably very small. Um, but this data set, uh, contained a total of six different, um, uh, different strains. And each of those strains had a time series set of measurements for both proteins. So those are the machines. So we have protein concentrations and we have metabolite concentrations. So these are all sort of the intermediate stations between where, you know, it, using going back to the analogy for the, the subway station. Um, they're sort of the intermediate chemical stations between where I am in metabolism and where I want to go. Um, so I've got these two separate concentrations for a set of time points. Um, and, and what I'm trying to do is predict what happens to the metabolites at the very next time point. Okay. And the, maybe going back to this analogy of the hill, the hill then represents, yeah. uh, is it your ability to predict forward at any point in time or is it, uh, exactly right. is it something else? No, you're exactly right. So if you know the hill, right, you can put the ball down anywhere and I can, you can tell me what happens next. In the same way, um, if you know uh, how a strain starts out its life, I can tell you how it's going to evolve and ultimately how much limonene it will end up producing over time. And we can also look to see if there's any problems. As these metabolites change, they can signal toxicity issues or other problems we might want to address in the metabolic engineering process. So it gives us a lot of information if we can sort of do these experiments in silico. Um, maybe, maybe it's also worth um, making some uh, points about how there are challenges in synthetic biology with machine learning and sort of what are some unique things that, that we face. Um, uh, before we do that, yeah. maybe talk a little bit about the kind of the method, right? So you've got this sure. time series data that you captured. Uh, you're trying to ultimately characterize the complex behavior of the system with that time series data. Uh, you know, how did you, how did you get from the data to the characterization? What was your overall process? Yeah. Okay. So you have this data, um, like I said before, and, um, and from these time series, essentially what we do is we smooth it out because we actually have, you know, not that many time points. Uh, and then we calculate the time derivatives for each of the metabolites on this path. And so that gives us this relationship between, um, between the metabolites at a given time um, to the metabolites at the next instant in time. So in other words, how, do, how does the internal chemical state of the cell change um, at each unit in a particular time series? And once and so these are, can, is it, uh, do you think of these uh, metabolite, uh, you know, these are like partial derivatives of this equation that you're ultimately trying to figure out? Um, yeah, just time derivatives. Yeah. Um, so we have time derivatives of these, uh, we have time derivatives of these, uh, metabolic paths through time. And then each, uh, each metabolite state derivative pair, including, and also their proteins are included in the features for each of these, uh, at each time point represents one, uh, one example in our, that will feed to our model. And so essentially from the three or six time series, 
uh, we're able to expand that out. Um, and since if we've sampled enough along that curve, then we can actually augment the data set and produce on the order of say maybe a hundred examples for each one of those uh, each one of those complete time series curves. Um, so it's still relatively small in terms of the total number the total amount of data we have to work with. Okay, so you've got your your input features are basically these uh, time series derivatives, and then you're using these to predict the overall system characteristics. Uh, what kind of models did you uh, are you applying to this? Yeah, so uh, because we have sort of limited data, uh, we use more traditional machine learning approaches. Um, and for us, that meant, you know, random forest, so ensemble tree-based approaches. Um, we actually used uh, uh, one of the uh, freely available meta-learners, um, this package called Teapot, which allowed us to sort of search for um, – uh, search for the best models that would help us find the relationship between the met the metabolism state and the metabolism derivative at each time point. And yeah, so once we get once we extract one of those models, uh, then we use that to do downstream processing. The downstream processing in this case is what? Okay, so as soon as we have that relationship, um, the model itself, you can think of that as the hill. So um, from before, so we have so. That model tells us uh, in the context of the hill, if we find, find a good model, uh, we feed it a bunch of time series and then we get a model. That model represents our hill. So at any time point um, or at any point we put the ball down on, we will know exactly where it moves at the next point. And what we want to actually extract from these models are entirely new time series. So what we do is we take that model um, and we integrate it uh, over time uh, and allow us to get trajectories. So uh, we can put the ball down at the top of the hill and then essentially use uh, a numerical integration technique to let us understand the trajectory of that ball as it rolls down the hill. And how does that ultimately tie into allowing you to kind of manufacture these compounds uh, more efficiently? Yeah. So once we have a model that tells us how the organism state evolves over time, then what this does is addresses one of the key challenges that we have in synthetic biology, which is every time you want to make any data, the reason why our data sets are so small is that, you know, we can actually make lots of features. So that's not too bad. Every time we build a particular strain that, you know, makes a particular molecule, um, it can take maybe, you know, two, three, six months to get that strain uh, to work, depending on what we're trying to do. And once we have that strain working, we can actually extract many, many features from it. But using this model, what we're actually able to do is take relatively few strains, which again are very time consuming and difficult to make, often very expensive as well, and then use that to build an in silico model where we can then uh, do a bunch of experiments where we vary a lot of parameters to try to find the best strain to make next. And so oftentimes what we're doing is just trying to minimize the amount of things we actually have to build because it is so expensive. When you're trying to, to vary the, the proportions of these strains and kind of come up with a, you know, a, a next uh, set of things to test, have you applied machine learning to that particular part of the problem or is that more traditional simulation and things like that? Well, traditionally, actually, this is uh, this is something that we're working on now. We have a paper in preparation um, to kind of handle this issue. Absolutely. Um, so oftentimes what's traditionally done is that 
um, biologists will who make the strains themselves will basically they'll make their strains and they'll test them out and then they'll use intuition or knowledge from the literature to make those decisions. But once you have a lot of variables, you have a lot of, let's say, a lot of proteins that you need to change at once, um, their intuition often breaks down. And so absolutely, we're applying uh, various kinds of uh, methods to making predictions on how to change the strain next. And that's sort of, um, that's sort of uh, an extension to this method that we describe in the paper. Um, and we use uh, Bayesian optimization-like approaches to handle that, um, along with some uh, Monte Carlo sampling-type approaches. So, um, yeah, that work is is forthcoming, and hopefully soon will be out in the world. So, uh, cool. How does the the Monte Carlo sampling uh, apply here? Oh, uh, I'm not sure. I I can give this stuff away just yet, but oh, I'd be happy to put it. Yeah, it's pre-pub. Got um, it. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's yeah. I would, I'd love to share. I really would. Um, but as soon as it's out, I'll, I'll definitely uh, share with everybody. So fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, you know, this this conversation is interesting. It reminds me of uh, an interview that I did recently uh, that hasn't been posted yet with uh, a researcher named Nathan uh, Kutz out of the University of Washington, who is trying to also uh, apply control systems theory and time series data, in his case, to the problem of uh, tuning lasers and um, and also building models that describe neurological pathways in simple organisms. Uh, um, and the thing that he did that is kind of potentially interesting to you, like he's also trying to find the shape of the hill, right? And right. Like in your case, you know, these things are traditionally modeled with, uh, you know, explicit equations and differentiated and all that kind of stuff. And so he created this model that is um, the model is a linear combination of all different kinds of features that you might expect to be in one of the physics equations, you know, so uh, exponentials and squares and cubics and. Uh, all these, all these like higher order types of factors and then, uh, use some relatively simple, you know, linear regression types of techniques to fit a model to the time series data and ultimately, uh, use that to determine like the empirical equations that govern these relationships for the problems that he's trying to solve. Um, oh. which sounds kind of interesting. Uh, you know, I, I said most, I said that mostly to kind of challenge myself to explain, uh, what he, what he described to me, but also because it sounds like, a uh, an interesting kind of parallel approach to solving this ultimate problem that you're trying to solve. Yeah. I mean, I think it's one of these things where, um, you dig down deep enough in enough fields and there's fundamentally shared challenges. Um, and I think definitely one of the big ones right now, one of the things I see, cropping up in different fields is this issue of how do you understand dynamic behavior just from data? And anybody who's doing that in a different context is certainly really interesting to me. You've got this the, these systems. Like, Can you talk at all about what the impact of this work has been or what kind of results you've seen or like how has this fundamentally changed this, this work for you? Yeah. So we're moving forward now uh, from from the paper and we're trying to basically go from the smaller data sets that have been collected and motivate 
bigger data collections so that we can see what happens once we actually get into the realm where we can start using more sophisticated models. And so, uh, I mean, so far it's, it's relatively new. So there's, we've, we've gotten a lot of interest from other researchers and trying to use this for other applications. Um, people are, have been interested in, um, you know, the microbiome, uh, that's one of the big things that, that people are interested in right now, figuring out, you know, how this interplay between all these different microbes actually plays out, because right now there's a real challenge with predictivity in that arena. So, you know, I think the impact going forward is, is likely to be, uh, providing predictivity where before a lack of experimental knowledge or a lack of uh, scientific knowledge would have limited us from making good models. Um, and ultimately, you know, I, I want to live in a world where more data in some sense equals greater predictivity and more knowledge. But right now, you know, those things aren't actually all that coupled. Are you personally involved in some of these applications to adjacent areas or is this just things that you're seeing in the community kind of grow out of some of your work? Those things will just be starting for us. So we're definitely reaching out and looking for collaborations. That's definitely a big thing that, you know, is, is for us. Um, and yeah, I mean, definitely uh, we're, uh, and you know, there's, there's other things ongoing recently. We've, we've, uh, acquired a new robot here at, at, uh, JBay in order to actually start producing the kind of data we really want in order to rigorously evaluate this for bigger data sets and see if we can really learn uh, substantial things that will let us solve the, the major challenges of metabolic engineering and, and do this effectively, effectively increase the titers uh, without so much failure in our guessing. Yeah. One of the questions that I did have was you mentioned that the kind of cycle time of setting up an experiment or, or creating one of these organisms is, you know, on the order of months, two to, to six months to kind of get it right. What all happens in that two to six months? Oh, yeah. So this is this is the uh, the messy and interesting world of the lab. Um, so, you know, if, if we we start out with essentially an idea, which is, all right, here's the pro we're trying to make substance X. Let's go back to, you know, limonene, say uh, maybe even we could we could do a different one. Let's say pinene. Pinene can, is is a, a substance you can find in in uh, pine nuts, and it also you can use it as a jet fuel, it turns out. And so, you know, the researchers, researchers say they want to create, pine, uh, create pinene using one of their strains, and so first they go into the literature and they look for all the, the proteins they're going to need to put into the organism, um, and so first you need to get those synthesized. You have to go send those off to a company who makes that DNA. Um, they go ahead and they, they make all that DNA, they send it to us. And then, then the next step is the researchers have to test out each one of those proteins to make sure they work because we're taking it from some other organism and putting it into a new context. It's like if you went to some, uh, you know, semiconductor factory and you used a machine that was kind of similar to what you needed in say like a textile factory, you have to bring it back and make sure it's still working in that context. And so they go through the process of validating all these different enzymes, making sure they work. Um, and then you have to put them all together into a single piece of DNA and put them in. And, um, depending on the organism, this can be a time consuming process. So first you have to put it all together and that can take, you know, a few days to a week to do that. If it works, if it doesn't, you have to go through a set of troubleshooting steps. Um, and then, you know, let's say you actually get it all assembled and you put it in, um, 
you know, maybe, uh, maybe it does certain parts of it don't express well enough. Maybe, you know, there's a lot of issues that can go wrong. Um, so that can take a period of time as well. And then once you get past that point of putting it all in, you have a strain uh, and then you can test that strain. So all of these things that, you know, there's like for almost all those steps, there's like, you know, weeks to months, um, depending on how much difficulty you encounter. Um, and then, uh, you put it all together and you hope it does what you want it to do. So. And I've got to imagine that in the kind of scenarios you're describing, the data that you're collecting can be fairly noisy, fairly messy, um, which I think would compound or be compounded by the fact that you're not collecting a ton of it. Um, Are there things that you've had to do in, in your pipelines or modeling processes that you've had to do specifically because of those issues? Yeah, um, we're definitely very aware of it. There's there's a limited amount we can actually do about it right now. I mean, really, it's going towards future challenges. Uh, usually, all these experiments, uh, kind of this, the field standard, which um, you know uh, may have to change, is you do everything in triplicate. So if you if you do an experiment, you do three copies of the same experiment, and then um, you can use that triplicate data to sort of narrow down where you expect it actually to show up. And so you can get, you know, tighter bounds on the error for each one of your measurements. Um, but uh, oftentimes, even after you do that, even after you take into account, you know, all of the variation, you still can have really substantial um, variation in your data. And part of that is just because um, it's a messy process. You know, you have human beings doing the sampling and human beings have to be, you know, their lives are taken into account. So, for example, the data set we're work- we were working with, it was collected by two postdocs over 72 hours. They literally were sitting um, beside the fermenter and every two to four hours they had to go collect their samples, prep them and deal with them. And so, like, you know, they took turns like sleeping so that they could do this. And that, that's part of the reason why we don't have a lot of data sets like that. Uh, not to mention, you know, lack of sleep and then maybe you miss it by 20 minutes on the measurement. You know, if you've got a time, a variation in your time measurement by plus or minus 20 minutes, you know, that, that of course can introduce error. And there's just little things like that. So, you know, one of the things we're hoping is that uh, as we move towards more robotic solutions, we can sort of key in on all the components of the error and tighten it up uh, much more. And there's definitely, you know, there's definitely industrial players in the field who are who are doing this kind of thing as well. Awesome. Any advice or pointers for folks that are interested in this area and want to learn more about what's happening in it? Oh, yeah. So, um Pretty much now, it's become very accessible. If you're interested in biotechnology, um, there are a lot, at least in San Francisco, there are a lot of sort of places where you can learn this, these sort of biohacker spaces. So if you're interested, it's out there. You can go and visit one of these things, look up your local biohacker space, um, and uh, and you can go out and, and figure out, you know, what's going on. You can you can do CRISPR. You know, it's it's at the end of the day, it's very much like cooking. And, um, and if you know how to follow a recipe, you can learn how to do synthetic biology. Um, so and then, what, well, I, I had no idea that CRISPR was that accessible. Like what is, what's an example of something that someone could do, you know, with CRISPR, just accessing a, a machine at one of these biohacker spaces? Yeah. So CRISPR, you know, just like all the things we were talking about today, it's a protein. And so it's defined by a piece of genetic code. And so all you need to do is make these genetic constructs um, and you can use it. Uh, 
in our case, you know, typically in biohacker spaces, you're not going to be dealing with human cells. Um, that's a little bit more challenging. There's, there's issues with um, biosafety and things like that and getting approval. So that'll be a little harder. But if you want to work with plants or you want to work with, um, you want to work with uh, microorganisms, that's totally doable. Um, and so really at the end of the day, all you have is essentially a construct, uh, just a, a piece of DNA that you put into your cells. And it will express CRISPR, which is, you know, these genetic scissors that will allow you to essentially make cuts in the genome where you want uh, that are targeted by these guides. And yeah, it's, it's actually very accessible. You know, it's really at the end of the day, you're transferring liquids from one thing to another. And then if you do this in the right order uh, and you design your experiment right, you get, you know, the genetic modifications you want and you can verify it in the lab pretty easily. What would be in the book of 10 weekend projects to do at a biohacker space? Oh, um, so this is actually, when I was first getting into it, I had very little SynBio experience. So I visited some of these. Um, I think, I guess, shout out to BioCurious, which is one of the ones in the Bay that was very accessible, very friendly people. Um, at first, like the first thing you do the, in, in, in biology typically is is you, you make things glow, it turns out. So... Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, and you probably don't need CRISPR for this, but this might be one of the first things you do is you sort of put these, you, you put in a piece of DNA that expresses a glowing protein one this thing called GFP that comes from jellyfish. And then you put these things under a light and you can see them glow. And so that, that way you can see the work you want done. But in terms of like the cool projects they were doing, I, I'm not really up to date on what everybody's doing now, but, um, at the time they were work, working on making, um, uh, they were working on making animal-free uh, milk products and things like that, or animal-free cheese, I think, vegan cheese, and by expressing a protein called casein. And I, I'm not sure which genetic tools they were using, but mm -hmm. almost certainly uh, you can find a way to use, like if you want to get some experience with CRISPR, you can do it at one of those places. Wow. Yeah, it's really accessible. High school kids are doing it these days, yeah. Well, Zach, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me. I learned a ton, and I appreciate your uh, explanations and analogies. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Anytime. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. For more information on Zach or any of the topics covered in today's show, head on over to twimmelai.com slash talk slash 163. Please don't forget to head over to twimmelai.com slash nominate to cast your vote for us in the People's Choice Podcast Awards. And of course, as always, thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.